Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haber, the stage and screen podcast, coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios at beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Today is Friday, November 5th, and this week we're celebrating our 50th episode with a very special guest, voice actor extraordinaire Rob Paulson. Rob has over 2,000 half-hour programs and dozens of films, video games, and other animated media to his credit. Plus a Daytime Emmy, a Peabody Award, and three Annie Awards. Stay tuned for Rob and his hilarious cast of characters. There is quite a cast of characters playing on stage right now at Bremerton Community Theater as well, and any one of them might be a murderer. Running through November 21st, it's Clue, the play based on the film, based on the board game. Check out our behind-the-scenes preview available now on our YouTube channel and find Greg's review of the show on our Facebook page. Then hurry out and get your tickets at bctshows.com. Well, Thanksgiving is less than three weeks away, and that means Christmas is just around the corner. We hope you'll make plans to join us Saturday, December 18th at the historic Roxy Theater for A Classic Christmas. Our friend Jeremy Arnold will join us for a -a one-of-a-kind roundtable discussion before It's a Wonderful Life hits the Roxy big screen at 7 p.m. and plan to come early for a matinee showing of White Christmas and holiday bites and wine before we hit the stage with Jeremy. Plus, we'll also enjoy a special Christmas message from Zuzu herself, Carolyn Grimes. Get more info at roxybremerton.org. And now we're pleased to ring in our 50th episode with a man who's given voice to some of the most popular and timeless animated characters of our generation. Rob Paulson was born in Detroit, Michigan, and at an early age fell in love with the talents of comedians like Pat Paulson, Foster Brooks, Red Skelton, Carol Burnett, Jonathan Winters, Peter Sellers, and of course the cast of Monty Python. His first role as an entertainer was as a singer, which trained his ear, eye, and voice to work together in a wide array of styles. Rob hit L.A. in the 1970s intending to be a live-action actor that quickly fell under the spell of the Groundlings, the legendary Los Angeles comedy improv troupe, where he befriended and worked with Phil Hartman, Paul Rubens, Lynn Marie Stewart, John Paragon, Cassandra Peterson, and Lorraine Newman. His skills honed, he landed his first voice gig on G.I. Joe, which opened the door to Hanna-Barbera, and veteran director Gordon Hunt, who cast Rob as one of Rob's favorite characters from boyhood, Haji, in a revival of the classic series Johnny Quest. That early success came right at the advent of the cable revolution and the millennial baby boom, and a sudden demand for family-oriented programming that would enchant young viewers as well as their parents. Disney, Warner Brothers, and Hanna-Barbera all started reviving old series and creating new ones, while networks like Nickelodeon and other syndication outlets began demanding more original daytime programming, and Rob and his colleagues were part of it all. Rob is best known for bringing life to beloved characters like Yakko on Animaniacs, Raphael on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Pinky and Dr. Scratch and Sniff on Pinky and the Brain, Carl Weezer on the adventures of Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, and many, many, many more throughout a career spanning five decades, 2,000 half-hour programs, dozens of films, video games, and other animated media, earning him a Daytime Emmy, a Peabody Award, and three Annie Awards. After fighting a successful battle with throat cancer in 2016, a story detailed in his 2019 memoir, Voice Lessons, Rob is back and busier than ever, and still one of the hardest-working, most in-demand, and beloved voice artists in the industry. In 2020, he reprised his role as Yakko in a reboot of Animaniacs on Hulu and has set new dates for his live show, Animaniacs in Concert, performed with live music in symphony halls and theaters around the country. He's an outspoken advocate for people battling cancer and frequently makes time to bring joy and comfort to fans of all ages all over the world. And Rob joins us from his home in San Simeon, California. Rob, welcome to the show. Hello, Matt and Greg. Yakko Warner here from high atop the water tower, the San Simeon version, and I'm very, very, very glad to be here. 
Well, it sounds like we're going to be joined by a cast of thousands. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever's banging around in my cabeza at any given moment, they're going to show up. It's kind of like the three faces of Eve plus a couple. <laughs> See, Greg, we didn't have to bribe him to get That's that right. voice. Oh, no. no. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> well, oh, I, need, I want to get a couple of narfs in by the end of the show. That's so right. let's... Well, I'll, listen, if that's narf, okay. Well, good night. That was a pleasure. That was easy. All right. That's a wrap. Yeah. <laughs> well, Rob, thank you again so much for joining us. We were just chatting off air uh, about a little hockey, and uh, you mentioned that you were born in Detroit. And uh, according to your bio, you, you quickly realized that you didn't quite have the quote, talent, temperament, or dental insurance to become a professional hockey player. So you turned to your second love, which was music early on, and began training your ear that way, thus unintentionally starting your voice uh, training as a, as a voice actor. What were some of your earliest performing influences as a child, and do you remember what the first voice was or impersonation that you ever attempted back in Detroit? Well, if I were a coy and just a little bit of a smartass, I would say my very own voice, but I won't say that because I'm, I'm neither of those things. Uh, that's of course a lie. That my first performance influence was, and it's the dead truth, was Elvis, because I'm 65 years old. I was born in 1956. Uh, people don't know this, but I'm really older than that. I just don't talk about it. I was the entertainment at the Last Supper. That's how old. I was Shecky of Arimathea in those days. Um, but seriously, as, as soon as I was able to kind of grasp performance or the Ed Sullivan show, probably more specifically, uh, it didn't take me long to think Elvis is the guy. So uh, I did my version of, uh, I don't know, at five or, five or six years old of, of Hound Dog, except I couldn't quite get the right words in the right order. So my invention of the title of that song was You Ain't Nothing But an Old Ground Hot Dog, which, depending upon the way you listen to it, could well be true. Sure. So that was my first influence. But cartoon-wise, I think it was all about Looney Tunes, all about Mel Blanc, all about June Foray, all about Dawes Butler, even over at Hanna-Barbera. I mean, come on, you know, that group right there, uh, Bill Scott, Jay Ward, Paul Fries, Edward Everett Horton, it just does not get any better. And uh, everybody who had a pulse back then was inundated by those cartoons on Saturday morning. And it was the first version, in my view, of much CTV, for sure. And I'm telling you, I get people all the time coming up to me at events saying, you know, this autograph is for me. I'm 46 and I really like pinky in the brain as though it's this badge of dishonor and I say look man I'm 65 years old I do it for a living do you think that Rocky and Bullwinkle and Looney Tunes were written for a bunch of eight-year-olds yeah. <laughs> no Steven Spielberg God bless him is what 75 I don't think please don't apologize about your age so it was all about Looney Tunes and then later on down the road um, Hanna-Barbera for sure that's something I didn't know about the Flintstones was that they were that was really a show kind of based on the Honeymooners and aimed at an adult audience. Absolutely. And they even had I remember Tony Curtis comes on the show and he's Stony Curtis and Anne Margaret showed up and she's Anne Margrock. And it wasn't people imper impersonating them. It was those celebrities. Yeah. Um, and the Flintstones was a primetime show. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was on ABC. Just like Johnny Quest, there's another primetime show, which was a huge influence to me. In fact, many years later, uh, the first steady character I had on an animated show was with our dear friend Gordon Hunt, the late, great Gordon Hunt, who cast me as Haji on Johnny Quest. And man, I thought I was going to lose my mind. I was Haji, for God's sake. That was a huge deal for me. So, yeah, um, these are these are all written by adults for the kid and all of us, as they say. <laughs> 
Exactly. But what is the difference? You know, Matt's question he asked about uh, impersonations or voice characters. What's the difference technically if you're doing either of those? Is there a difference between trying to impersonate something that already exists and then creating a new character? Well, there is to me because I'm not particularly good at Im impressions. I mean, I do a fairly good Christopher Walken, but anybody pretty much can do their version of Christopher Walken. You know. Um, hi. Yeah. Not hi. bad. <laughs> there you go. Hello. Uh, so for me, it was about creating new ones. I was inspired, to be sure, by people that had uh, actors who had a big sound. You mentioned the honeymoons. I mean, it doesn't get it. You know, baby, you're the greatest. It just doesn't get any bigger than that. And, uh, good night, everybody. Uh, uh, Miami Beach audiences are the greatest. I mean, those are big voices. And the same with Red Skelton, you know, and Ed Gwynn doing, let's go fly a kite, you know. But those are voices you can really wrap your, your sort of vocal cords around, as it were. But to, for me, to get to a place where I was not only satisfying myself, but able to make a living, it was about creating something. I am not as good as the people around me here in Hollywood. This is Hollywood. You can throw a dart and hit a good impressionist, grip, writer, singer, you name it, you know, DP. And so with people like Maurice LaMarche and Brad Garrett and uh, uh, Jeff Glenn Bennett and, and Jess Harnell, all of whom are wonderful impressionists and, uh, and, and, when and Jim Cummings, when Winnie the Pooh was had to be taken over, they found a gentleman who could really do Winnie the Pooh, and it was Jim Cummings. Yeah. And um, he's been doing it now for 37 years. Bill Farmer's been doing Goofy for uh, just about the same time, I think. And their skill set is not only in creating characters, in Jimmy's case, he created Darkwing Duck, but he also does a spot on Tigger and Pooh, and he's been doing it for 35 years. And that's a singular skill. I'm good at creating. People like Jimmy and Billy are good at both ends of the spectrum, and that's that's a pretty remarkable skill set. Another person who uh, most people may not think of first as a voice actor, uh, but certainly made his mark there, along with on the big screen and television, was Phil Hartman. And oh. you were able to interact with Phil, a, a big hero of ours. When you landed in L.A. in the 70s, you had a chance to work with the Groundlings, and he was a member there oh. along with Paul Rubens. Uh, what was your experience like working with them, and, and when did it really first dawn on you that, okay, voice acting is in my professional future? Boy, am I glad you, you enumerated a number of the greats. In fact, just this weekend, literally 24 hours ago, I was just getting on a plane having spent the weekend signing autographs with John Lovitz. John Lovitz was oh. at a big um, uh, event with all of us in Denver. More, my friend the brain, Maurice Lamarche and I were there. So was uh, Mr. Lovitz, and it's always a gas to see John. But his pals, uh, in the truest sense of the word, were the people you mentioned. Um, Pee Wee, for those of you who don't know, uh, Paul Rubens is Pee Wee Herman. Phil Hartman was, you know, the juggernaut that was Phil Hartman. And I don't want to uh, misstate it. I was I studied with them and worked with them, but I was not in the A group. I was not I was not had not been around long enough to be in that A group where Bill created Chick Hazard and a lot of his other characters, and Paul created Pee Wee and uh, Cassandra Peterson created Elmira. All uh, oh, marvelous. Uh, Tress McNeil, my friend Dot Warner, my sister Dot was in that group. But but uh, having studied there and getting to work with them and getting to know them. Phil was uh, a gentleman to whom I owe a great deal, mostly uh, his ability to calm me down and tell me it's not about you being like me, because I used to refer to Phil as terrifyingly inspirational. And I think that's apt because he's 
he was so incredibly gifted. It, as a young actor, you kind of think, oh my God, if that's what I got to do, I'm in trouble. And it was Phil who literally took me aside and said, Robbie, 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 come on, you, come on. You, know? you don't have to be me. You have to steal stuff from me. If I inspire you, great. But I stole from Jonathan Winters and we did this and we did, you know, all of that. So it was Phil who really put me at ease. And uh, God, what a talent. Yeah. I, I worked with Phil at Hanna-Barbera a lot. He was on The Simpsons, as many of you know. And because he had that incredible voice, he was also a fine looking man, but it didn't matter when you're a guy like that, with those chops, you want to use whatever you can, whenever you can. And the same with the producers. They just wanted to get their hands on Phil anytime they could. But yeah, he was uh, a remarkable, um, a remarkable gentleman. And um, he is certainly missed pretty much every day by, by a bunch of us here in Hollywood. Yeah. And around the world. Uh, it's amazing. Now you you've mentioned uh, a plethora of people that that have influenced you and um, have helped you along the way. When you were coming up, was there any sort of education available? Was it a legitimate career pursuit? It seems like it's a little more maybe legitimized these days right. than than it was then. But was there any sort of education or career path if someone wanted to get into voice acting? Not really, Greg. And that's a great question. And you're correct. It is much more of a viable pursuit. Uh, kind of a, a secondary offshoot of your acting skills or whatever. People say, I want to be a voice actor. The only two world-class, uber-successful voice talents I know in high school who came out here specifically seeking voice work in animation are Nancy Cartwright, a.k.a. Bart Simpson, and Corey Burton, whom you guys would know as um, Count Doku on um, Star Wars just look up Corey Burton, C-O-R-E-Y-B-U-R-T-O-N, and you'll you'll get. He's Ludwig van yeah. now too. And he's the voice. I think he does a lot of voice work for Disney. I think he's the voice of the parks. You know, right. he yeah. does. Well, he does the, the parks. He's Ludwig von Drake now. Um, uh, I first met Corey working on Gummy Bears a million years ago, and Corey is very involved with Disney. But uh, Corey. And Nancy both studied with Oz Butler, who's Huckleberry Hound and Captain Crunch and Yogi Bear and gobs of others over at Hanna-Barbera. Uh, but they're the only two who did. And my Jones, when I came here, was not to do animation. I just wanted to work. I was a singer, as you mentioned earlier, who became an actor and spent a couple of years on the road doing live theater before it was time for me to jump in the big kid's pool. And it was just a natural progression. Uh, in the mid 80s, I was asked to audition for a couple of shows, which ended up being called G.I. Joe and Transformers. And my response to my agent was, yeah, I just want to work. But I'll tell you what, you guys, the thing that I noticed first and foremost, which has stuck with me throughout my career, is you walk into a room with people whom I recognize from episodic television, Bill Daly or Marshall Wallace or uh, Bob Ridgely, Jack Riley, wonderful, wonderful at Hamilton Camp, uh, Artie Johnson, Ruth Buzzy, people working who I grew up watching on TV in the 70s and 80s, and they're in doing characters for which they would never be cast on camera. And so all these world-class actors were utterly fearless and utterly corralled by the way they look, mm -hmm. judged. And for a Ted young cast, guy, yeah. At, yeah, at that age, I was 28, I think. And at that age, to not be immediately cast by the fact that you're an average looking five foot 10 kid from Michigan, 
So yeah, bring him in. He looks like he could do the. He looks like he could be the boyfriend, irrespective of your chops. You're you're judged on this right away, especially as just a a working or a rank and file actor, which I still proudly am. So to be in that circumstance to see all these people with these incredible careers talking like this and talking like this and talking like a pirate doing this. It was the, the epitome of, of being a kid and, and playing, you know, saying, I'm going to be the monster and you be the guy killing Godzilla. And, you know, what does the gun sound like? There comes the cop, you know, whatever. That's exactly what they were doing. And I thought, I called my agent and said, man, this is for me. Now, I'm not going to issue uh, on-camera work because I wanted to get a TV pilot. I wanted to get the next Happy Days or whatever, like every other kid in town in the late 70s. But it so happened that I started getting more and more work with my voice. Then folks found out I could sing. Then they found out I could sing in character. And then they found out I could do dialects. And one thing led to another. And probably about seven years after that is when I said, you know what? I think I am kind of issuing the uh, on-camera stuff. It's not that I don't want to do it, but when I go into a room with a hundred other guys and all, they all look like me to be the next door neighbor. And yet I'm doing pinky in the brain in the morning and the mask in the afternoon. And then tomorrow I'm doing the tick in the morning and Jimmy Neutron in the afternoon. And then the following morning, I'm doing Johnny Quest in the morning and Smurfs in the afternoon. And I'm paid for all of them. And they generate residuals. And I get to work with the people you mentioned. I'm not going to wait for those guys to bang on my door. I want this gig right now. <laughs> and you don't have to spend hours in a makeup chair. Not exactly. <laughs> and, and, and the number of times, you guys, that someone like George Hearn, you know, Broadway legend, or, uh, uh, or like I said, Ruth Buzzy, a, a, yeah. a, a fixture on 70s television, 60s and 70s television, would come in to work and they'd just be John Aston. Did you ever cross paths with Paul Lind? Oh, only once. And I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but I would have loved to. Uh, but uh, John Aston, Carol Channing, people who are big stars, TV, Broadway stars, Phil Hartman ultimately would come in and they wanted to be there. They didn't look at it as like, well, kind of slow. George Hunt said, are you kidding me? I'm out here doing Murder, She Wrote with Angela Lansbury. And Gordon Hunt said, you want to do a few episodes of Smurfs? And I said, you bet I do. I'm glad to be working. I got an apartment to pay for in Manhattan. <laughs> this guy's won two Tonys. So it was all just, and you know, Jonathan Witters and Paul Williams and Mark Hamill and over and over again, Linda Pearl and Ed Asner, all of whom were doing cartoons. So it legitimized itself. It's not like I had to be convinced because I was in no position to say, wait a minute, don't you know who I am? I just wanted to work. But when you walk in, you see roomfuls of people like that. It kind of lets you know that it's okay to be here. In fact, you want to be in this club, kid. And boy, am I glad that I had the type of ego that said to me, well, what do you want to do, son? You want to work or do you want to be recognized walking down the street? Yeah. The former may never happen. Right now, you've got people willing to pay you to be the talking duck and you're going to sit next to Jonathan Winters for the next four hours. So what do you think you should take? Right. You, you mentioned Mark Hamill and I just, here's a guy who probably would never have to work again. And never. yet he does a ton of voice work and he's proud of it. I mean, he, he's, he, oh. you know, he, he loves it. Yeah. The Joker on the 
probably, well, my son is 37 and loves Batman. And he has said on more than one occasion, and he, he's a, a, you know, a connoisseur of that and James Bond. And he said, I'll tell you what, man, if I had to go to a desert island, I, was, I had to watch one animated show forever, it would be Batman, the animated series. And moreover, I would probably choose that over any of the films, doing no small part to Kevin Conroy as Batman and Mark Hamill as the Joker. That was a badass cartoon. And yeah, I know Mark very well. Mark is not only delightfully gifted and the, the savior of the universe, but uh, a huge fan of pop culture and, and cartoons in particular. And I've worked with, Paul, uh, with Mark on four different shows, five, I think, five. Loves doing animation, loves it. And um, when he and I happen to be sitting next to each other at like New York Comic Con signing stuff, let me tell you something. Mark's line is out the door and more than half of those people are for the Joker. It's a big deal. Wow. People love that, that character. That's interesting. Uh, speaking of Star Wars, we interviewed um, actor Perry King uh, several months ago and Perry auditioned for the role of Han Solo, which eventually obviously went to Harrison Ford. Uh, but he ended up playing Han Solo on the NPR Star Wars radio shows. Is that right? Yeah, and and did you know several episodes of that uh, series really, and yeah. had a great time. Worked with Mark Hamill, and it's just it's great to see. You know, like you said, uh, he's the type of guy like you that just wanted to be working, and yeah. and an opportunity arose that wasn't necessarily what he'd set out to do, but that flexibility, you know, really worked in his favor. Thank you, and it and it it does. In fact, I did an episode of um, the Greatest Stories of the Bible that was. Um, Joe Barbera's pet project over at Hanna-Barbera, and I played one of three time travelers that would go to these biblical events. And one of them was uh, David and Goliath, and Perry King was David. So I remember that many, many years ago. But um, no, it, 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 I lived, you guys, I lived that axiom that luck is when opportunity meets preparation. Uh, people talk about, well, so-and-so is lucky and that. And that. Yeah, you, you do get lucky, but you often put yourself in a position to get that way. If I had stayed in Detroit and kind of not uh, just like a million other kids from all over the world, not pushed through whatever fear or trepidation, or I don't have enough money, or what if I need to get a job? We'll get a job. Maybe you get six jobs this month. Who knows? But that's what you got to do. And here I am in a position where I thought to myself, I think I'm fixing to get lucky here. I love what I'm doing. I drove here. I'm prepared. Here's an opportunity. Well, that's called luck. And um, it's one thing to get a shot at it. And I'm talking um, more specifically about people like Jim Cummings and, and Billy Farmer, who, when you're taking a franchise character like Mickey or Donald or Winnie or even uh, um, Tigger, those are a big deal for the Walt Disney Company. Those characters create billions of dollars in revenue. And if they're not spot fricking on, it's goodbye from the happiest place on earth. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. You just, there's been times when you've had a, a Kermit the Frog. It didn't necessarily sound like Jim Henson. And yeah. The negative press on that are just opinions. Oh. I mean, Twitter just blows up, you know, that kind of thing. It, just, it goes crazy, but that yeah. shows you the power of the voice of those characters. And, and I would argue the soul. I mean, I don't try, I'm trying not to get too fancy schmancy about what I and my peers do, but we do create the souls for these characters. And if it's done right, and uh, we don't draw them, we don't write them, but with, with, world-class writing like Animaniacs and uh, incredible animation, decent execution. You have things that are timeless, like Bugs. Bugs is 80, you guys. And I could watch Kill the Wabbit, Kill the Wabbit every day. 
or I could watch um, duck season, weapon season, fire. You know, when Daffy's bill is up and backwards and tweaked. <laughs> right. You guys know what I'm talking about, and it immediately makes you laugh. You cannot help it. I've literally watched in a bad day. I'll I'll go to YouTube and find there's a 15 minute loop of Daffy Duck just laughing. <laughs> I'll just watch that for 15 minutes, and I feel so much better afterwards. And obviously, you're not the only one. So that shows the power of the of when these characters are, are inhabited by by a soul created by an actor. Like it's in in the in the case of Billy Farmer and Jim Cummings, it's one thing to get lucky, but to stick with those characters, with all the people that have come in um, through Disney and are in charge of making those choices and those decisions, and the people in the super high ivory towers that come back and forth through Disney. To hang on to those characters for 30 years is not lucky. It's because they're killing it. So I I always encourage young folks coming here to try everything. It, you do get to a place where you hopefully get busy enough that you have to say respectfully, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. But at the beginning, when it's all about you, when you have to be selfish and find out where your little niche is, how many times have you guys talked to people who may have come here to be an actor and end up being a producer or vice versa? They come to town and a guy says, hey, I'm doing a student film. One thing leads to another. The guy's the you know, fourth drunk on the right. He's got two lines. Somebody sees him. They cast him. And now the guy's got a TV series. So it really is about trying everything. But it didn't take a, Ro uh, a Rhodes Scholar to figure out that this cartoon gig is, is the gig. Well, you've gone on to... Oh, go ahead, Greg. I was just going to say, to summarize your whole last uh, statement, and I don't do voices, so I'm not even going to try, but as Edna Mode would say, luck favors the prepared. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and I, I was. I had been doing them simply because it made my soul happy. It's not a secret. I didn't make a dime at this till I was, I don't know, close to 30. But did that stop me from being creative? Of course not. My God, my, my axe is right here. I just like to do stuff because it's fun. It doesn't have to pay me. I do it because my new friends, Matt and Greg, are saying, look at that old man old enough to be my father, acting like a complete idiot. <laughs> and, and, uh, and of course, my remuneration is your laughter. That's, that's, what, that's what lights me up, you guys. Um, and so uh, I was prepared. I've been doing this and... and in hopes that it would help me and be a few more arrows in my creative quiver. But little did I know that I was so prepared that when Animaniacs rolled around, especially like, wait a minute, dude, you can sing. Yakko's got to sing. Can you want to sing about all the countries of the world? And you bet I can. And it changed my life, but I was prepared. Yeah. My brother, Josh, uh, that's one of his favorite um, uh, bits to whip out at parties is the the alphabet by Yakko, and I oh. told him who I was interviewing for this episode, and he was pretty impressed. So, how you, about that? You voiced Yakko among dozens of other lovable characters over the years, and uh, really some of the best in animation history. Over two thousand half-hour programs, dozens of films, video games. You've taken home a daytime Emmy, a Peabody, and three times the Annie Award. That's all the positive side. Let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges. What characters? Did you, well, let's see, what characters did you at the time most enjoy getting up in the morning to play? And then on the flip side, were there any that really threw you, any that were really challenging? Great question. Um, it's uh, at the risk of sounding just too simplistic. I mean, any time that you get up in the morning and you know that you're headed to the mask, the tick, Jimmy Neutron, 
gummy bears, goof troop, Smurfs, um, you name it. I mean, Tiny Toon Adventures, all that stuff, biker mice from Mars. Anytime you're heading there, it's a good day. You're going to make money doing what you're doing, what used to get you in trouble in seventh grade. It's pretty freaking cool. I think if there was one that I probably get, uh, it's a tie, frankly, between Pinky and Yakko. And I think because when you get a chance to work on something with Steven Spielberg, you get the best of everything. You get the best writers, um, our, our producer in those days, the show creator, uh, Tom Ruger, they have the best of everything. 30 piece orchestra every half hour with world-class Hollywood players, the best animators. It just doesn't stop. And so with a, we, uh, and then Pinky and the Brain, even though it was a, a kind of a um, secondary characters turned out to have their own show. And you get a chance to work with Maurice LaMarche, who's a two-time primetime Emmy winner from, from his work on Futurama, let alone the Brain. So it was always a great deal. And especially when I knew I got to sing. Uh, Animaniacs had a, had a pretty much one song for Yakko, or at least the whole gang in every half hour, if not every segment. And I got to sing a lot. And of course, that's my first love. So it was always great to know that I was going to go in and do a song, whether it's uh, Tunisia, Morocco, Uganda, Angola, Zimbabwe, Djibouti, Botswana, or uh, uh, it's a great big universe and we're all really puny. We're just tiny little specks about the size of Mickey Rooney. You might think that you're essential. Try inconsequential. It's a big universe and you're not. Um, <laughs> it's all great stuff. That's Bravo. Those I think were the most enjoyable. There, uh, there's a character I love doing, but in terms of it being difficult, it beats the daylights out of me. It's a character on a show called Fairly Odd Parents, which was a great show over at Nickelodeon. Yeah. Um, it's uh, this weird alien guy who's from a country, I mean, a planet called Yugopotamia. And he's just all totally balls out the whole time, man. And, you know, he's probably screaming because he can't hear himself from listening to so much Grateful Dead. But uh, it's a blast to do. There you go. <clears throat> but I'm good for about an hour. Hmm. Uh, and so if, if I, uh, the only time it was a problem is if I had a couple of gigs in the same day. And if that happened to be the first gig of the morning, then I had a, you know, pick and choose my spots to really go for it and talk to the producers and say, do you mind if we save mine and I can go, you know, let everybody else get done and go home and then I'll pick mine up and really go for it knowing that I, I want to get it all done within an hour if possible. But when it's, you know, in terms of it being difficult in the context of, of how I could be making my living, it's with a very small D, you know, <laughs> uh, but uh, all of it is a gas and, you know, we work on these shows and sometimes we never see them. Sometimes it's years before we see them. It's generally a minimum of a year before you see a show by the time it gets animated and everything. Uh, but I get to work with the best of the best. These actors are so smart, so funny, so talented. And to a man and woman are the kindest, most unpretentious, because it's not about how perfect your muscles are or the way your you know body looks. It's about your chops and it's about your improv skills. Billy West, John DiMaggio, Maurice LaMarche, Tress McNeil, April Winchell, gosh almighty, the Pete, Corey Burton, the, the, uh, Nancy Cartwright, Danny Castellaneta, over and over and over, Hank Azaria, just profoundly gifted individuals, Jess Harnell and Jim Cummings and Billy Farmer. It just doesn't stop, man. And any group, any group that, or any show you're working on, if you've got three or four of any of those actors, 
it's going to light up your soul, man. Yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Well, speaking of challenges, and you mentioned earlier that your voice is your instrument, and that's the, uh, the important piece of what you do. In your memoir, Voice Lessons, which was released in 2019, you talk about your battle with stage three throat cancer, which... Yeah, surprise. Yeah, which has, as a disease is nasty in and of itself. And yeah. then when it attacks the thing that is, you know, helps you make your living and yeah. what, um, how long were you away from, from doing your work? Can you tell us a little bit about the, about the recovery and maybe some of the things that got you through it? Sure. Thank you. And I'm, and I really, truly, I'm glad you asked because, uh, what's that axiom? We make plans and God laughs. I didn't get toe cancer. I didn't get hair cancer. I didn't get fingernail cancer. I got throat cancer. Surprise. But Precisely because, Greg, I had throat cancer, I am now in a really privileged position of being an expert on throat cancer and how to deal with it. And to the extent that I've cultivated anything resembling celebrity, and you guys are very kind in making a fuss over me, I now have a position in which, or am in a position in which I can help people, in which I am uh, often a go-to voice, no pun intended, to say, hey, We've got these folks who are struggling with this. Would you mind speaking with them? They know you from dit, 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 dit. And once they find out that you did that after throat cancer, then I've got a powerful story. So the people who got me through it were obviously world-class medical professionals, but my wife and my son and my daughter-in-law were absolutely, you know, like, like everyone, um, absolutely uh, integral to my dealing with everything. And I was told at the beginning, here's the deal. We're virtually sure we can cure you. But before we do, we almost have to kill you. And mm. it wasn't hyperbole. It, uh, for obvious reasons, mouth, tongue, throat, it's, it's pretty gnarly. But the treatment worked like a charm. What they didn't know was, uh, although we're virtually sure we can cure you, and they have, I'm five years out. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm cured. Um, we don't know if you're going to be able to do your gig at the same level. That's just the straight truth. We don't know if you'll be able to manipulate your voice and do kind of weird things with it because that radiation is powerful stuff. And though your tumor is not located in your vocal cord, thanks God, thank God, there will be some scar tissue. It's just, you're going to get, you know, we're going to help you with exercises, but we just don't know. However, they were not, uh, or rather they were totally successful in saving my vocal cords. And the thing that I think really, really uh, hammered me in the most joyful way to my soul was after I'd completed my first song on the new batch of Animaniacs in about 2018. Uh, we were back recording for the uh, eventual um, release last year, uh, 2018 or early 2019. Yeah, 2019. Anyway, uh, the people in the room with me on the other side of the glass didn't know about my particular medical history. But when I got done with a very complex song, uh, I had to take a moment and then I let them know what was going on. And I gave myself a, a few seconds to say, you know, well done. Cause that was something I wasn't ever sure that I'd be able to do again. So now as a result of you two gentlemen being so kind to me, we never know when someone is gonna watch this and they are gonna say, hey man, you're not going to believe this on Heilman and Haver. There's this guy, Ron Pullman. I don't know what his name is, but Uncle Bill, you've just been diagnosed with this throat cancer. You know how much we love Pinky and the Brain? This guy, we're watching him on Hulu right now. Check it out. This guy had what you had. 
you're fixing to go through it and it's going to be tough, but listen to him. That is great news, Uncle Bill. And that's why it's so kind of you guys to ask me about this, because um, I really believe things happen for a reason. And had I got, you know, liver cancer, it wouldn't have been probably nearly as easy to cure, but it wouldn't have also been as effective in terms of being just trying to be helpful. Well, a big thank you to our guest, Rob Paulson. Join us next week, Friday, November 12th, for the second half of our interview with Rob, when he'll share some of his technique as an actor behind the mic. In the meantime, find him on Twitter and Instagram, linked in the show notes, and request his book, Voice Lessons, How a Couple of Ninja Turtles, Pinky, and an Animaniac Saved My Life, from your local bookseller. And if you enjoy the show, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend or two. Tell them to find us at HeilmanandHaver.com and tune in on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. You can keep up with all our latest on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and check out special segments like In the Mix and Get to Know a Theater on YouTube. As always, thanks for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver.